Hey friends, I'm Faring here. I'm so glad you're joining me as we journey through the pages of God's Word, looking for the big picture story, digging deep in study, and discovering how all of this applies to our lives. Most importantly, I hope you're able to see how Jesus is found throughout it all, plus learn more about God's character and love for us along the way. Let's open our Bibles together, one chapter at a time. Okay friends, let's begin. Oh my, I simply can't find the right words to express how very excited I am that you are here with me today as we begin the first of a two-part discussion of the most wonderful time of the year. Well, more specifically, the time leading up to Christmas when we turn our attention to preparing our hearts and homes to celebrate Jesus' birth, prepare Him room, so to speak. That season is referred to as Advent, and the word Advent means coming or arrival. Actually, we really can't talk about Advent without talking about waiting, though, can we? An arrival implies anticipation and waiting for something or someone to come. There's always a wait in the meantime, in the in-between. Oof, that'll preach. So besides the fact that we get to gather around our Bibles in the beginning of December to study the story we've possibly heard hundreds of times before, but hopefully this time with fresh eyes and a new take, besides all that— The other reason we celebrate Advent each year is because we truly are forgetful people, and we often need to reread these reminders of the Old Testament prophecies of Jesus' coming and how they were all fulfilled through His birth. So we can then also look forward to the promises that we have about Jesus' second coming and know without a shadow of a doubt, with full 100% certainty, that He will come again, His second Advent, just as He promised once again be reminded that we live in between the already and the not yet of two Advents. Truthfully, one thing God seems to be settling deep into my heart during our study times throughout the last couple of years is this, the reality that Emmanuel, God with us, isn't something we should only celebrate at Christmas time. You see, God with us truly changes everything in any season. Yes, the gift of that baby in the manger on Christmas morning is absolutely amazing, but even more amazing is the mystery of our Savior's presence forever with us, wherever we go, through the Holy Spirit. God with us wasn't one event on Christmas Day, or one lifetime lived in 33 years that Jesus walked on earth. God with us is most definitely now and forevermore. When we start here, we recognize that the story of God with us is about the very heart of God, and if we know nothing else, this is enough, that our Creator God loves us and created us for Himself. My prayer is that adopting this posture before we head into Advent will reframe the anticipation of Christmas in a new way. That our hearts will be truly grateful for all God has done in sending our rescuer Jesus, and so hopeful for when He returns again to make all things new. So much thankfulness for God with us. Hmm, that sounds a little bit like our last OOPT episode, doesn't it? I so hope you already had a chance to listen to that one. Once again, thankful for God with us and my dad. If not, I bet you know where you can find it, am I right? (laughs) Anyway, with all these thoughts stirring in our minds, how about we take some time to turn our attention to the Old Testament threads, promises, and prophecies of the rescuer who came down to the Israelites in Egypt, just as our rescuer came down in the form of a baby in a manger, Emmanuel, God with us. Our God always has been and always will be God with us. How about we break this concept down a bit? where we've been, and where we're heading. But before that, let's take a closer look at some of the names given to Jesus, clear back in the prophecies found in the book of Isaiah, to see what else we can learn about Him and His first coming. 
This Christmas story is more than just a nice tale, more than a sentimental time to be with family, more than a quaint major scene you put somewhere in your home. God came because our lives were shrouded in darkness, and that darkness can only be dispelled by His presence. For that reason, let's talk about the names that God gave to Jesus 800 years before He was born, as found in the scriptures of Isaiah. These names are the essence of who He is, and what God sent Him to do as a rescuer who came down. Truthfully, these names carry deep meaning and speak to the darkest, most broken parts of our heart. Wow, did you hear that, my friends? These names carry deep meaning and speak to the darkest, most broken parts of our hearts. That's beautiful. I don't know about you, but I sure am intrigued to go deeper into these names. But before we do, how about we begin by reading from Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14 from the New Living Translation, which reads, The virgin will conceive a child. She will give birth to a son, and will call him Emmanuel, which means God is with us. And then in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 1, the New Living Translation begins, Hope in the Messiah. Nevertheless, that time of darkness and despair will not go on forever. The land of Zebulun and Naphtali will be humbled, but there will be a time in the future when Galilee of the Gentiles, which lies along the road that runs between the Jordan and the sea, will be filled with glory. The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. For those who live in the land of deep darkness, a light will shine. You will enlarge the nation of Israel, and his people will rejoice. They will rejoice before you, as people rejoice at the harvest, and like warriors dividing the plunder. For you will break the yoke of their slavery and lift the heavy burden from their shoulders. You will break the oppressor's rod, just as you did when you destroyed the army of Midian. The boots of the warrior and the uniforms blood-stained by war will be all burned. They will be fuel for the fire. For a child is born to us, a son is given to us. The government will rest on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. His government and its peace will never end. He will rule with fairness and justice from the throne of his ancestor David for all eternity. The passionate commitment of the Lord of Heaven's armies will make this happen. Oh, friends, that's so good. Consider this with me. Do you know Jesus as any or even all of those five names we just read, as found in Isaiah chapters 7 and 9? As Emmanuel, as Wonderful Counselor, as Mighty God, as Everlasting Father, as Prince of Peace. Regardless of how you answer that question, let's lean in here a bit more, shall we? Let's start with Wonderful Counselor, and then we'll end our time together by circling back to Emmanuel, God with us. In a chapter titled He Gets It, in J.D. Greer's book, Searching for Christmas, he begins. One of the earliest Christians, the writer of a book in the New Testament called Hebrews, described Jesus this way. He is not unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. He has been tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us approach the throne of grace with boldness, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Hebrews chapter 4, verses 15-16 through This writer believed that Jesus sat and sits on a heavenly throne, that he is God himself, the king who rules over us. What's remarkable is that this is no distant God sitting up in heaven and peering down on the mess of this world and shaking his head in sadness or tisking at us in annoyance. This is a God who became human, who was born in poverty, and who knew what it was like to be tempted, rejected, lonely, hungry, and worried. In other words, a God who knows what it's like to be us. Jesus walked through all kinds of things that we walk through in this world. 
He faced many of the worst things that this world can throw at a person, which means that he can be a reliable guide to us in even the worst kinds of pain and the worst kinds of situations. In other words, he is uniquely qualified to be your counselor. The original word Isaiah used, which we translate counselor, means one who advises us, instructs us, and guides us through the problems from a position of authority. It doesn't just mean therapist. It means someone who has the experience to understand the situation, the wisdom to work out the solution, and the power to enact it. The counselor Isaiah is talking about is not the kind of person you call up late at night and pour your heart out to, and they mirror everything you say. Saying things like, Wow, that's terrible. Yeah, I bet that hurt. Oh, I struggle with her too. Of course it's great to have empathetic friends like that, and it does help to share. But if that's all your counselor does, something is missing. Isaiah wasn't saying that Jesus would be a great listener, though he was, or know exactly what questions to ask, though he did. No, he's talking about somebody to whom you can bring your worst problems, and he can show you the way out. He knows what he is doing, and he knows what we need to be doing. He has walked that path before. That's the kind of counselor Jesus offers to be for each of us. He is saying, the path of pain, I've endured it. Loneliness, I know it. Temptation, I know it. Betrayal, loss, heartache, I've walked those roads, and I can reliably show you the way through them. I can guide you across the border. Don't worry, I got it. He is the wonderful counselor. The prophecy about Jesus' birth tells us this. Jesus came for people with problems. The manner of his life confirms it, because not only did he live in homeless poverty, but at the same time he performed powerful miracles. Read any of the Gospels, the historical accounts of his life, and you'll see Jesus feeding 5,000 people with a boy's lunch. You'll see him giving sight to the blind and health to the chronically sick, and you'll see him raising dead people to life. Those miracles weren't just fun tricks to wow people or prove his power. It's not like Jesus just turned to his best friend one day and said, Hey, Peter, do you feel like flying? Is that on your bucket list? Because I can make that happen for you. And then sent Peter soaring up. No, every miracle started with a problem. Hunger, exclusion, disease, even death. And each time Jesus entered into that problem, using his miraculous power to transform it. There were only two qualifications people needed in order to know the power of their counselor working in their lives. One, they needed to know that they had problems and accept that they couldn't fix them, what you might call humility. And two, they needed to know that he could transform them and so come to him and ask, what you might call faith. The traditional Christmas season is a strange time. In one sense, it's a time full of joy. Families get together. Kids get so excited that they can't sleep. Gifts are opened. Everyone smiles and watches It's a Wonderful Life. Yet, at the same time, for many of us, it's a time that we find it hardest to bury our struggles or ignore our problems or regrets. Maybe you're all too aware that though you've put on a great Christmas with your loved ones, you're also breaking under the burden of something that you can't cope with. Or maybe you don't have any loved ones near you at all this Christmas. Jesus gets that. He didn't come for people who have it all together. He came for people with problems. He came for people whose lives were dysfunctional and messed up. He came for people who had driven their lives into a dead end. He came for those who had been mistreated, neglected, and abused. And he came for those who had gotten everything they wanted out of life and still found it didn't give them what they were looking for. He is, uniquely, the counselor. The one who has the experience to understand the situation, the wisdom to work out the solution, 
and the power to enact it. So in a sense, the most wonderful thing here is not the counsel, but the counselor himself. J.D. Greer says, because I'm a pastor, a lot of times I meet people who are wondering if Jesus can make their lives better. They're asking, can Jesus help my family? Can Jesus fix my struggling marriage? Can a relationship with Jesus help focus my career? Can it help me restore balance? Can it make me happy? And the answer is yes, he can help you with your problems. And if you're willing to listen to his counsel, to look to his transforming power, and to accept that he may say things that are different than how you've been figuring life out up to now, then he can and will help. But the bigger point is this. When you come to know Jesus, he gives you something far greater than the answers to those problems. He gives you himself. And who he is is better than what he does. You may be looking for a solution. God gives you something even better. A relationship with him. Life's greatest discovery is knowing Jesus, knowing he loves you, knowing his promise to be ever-present in your life, knowing that he promises to work all things out according to a plan that is bathed in love and executed in power. This discovery doesn't take away all your problems, but it does completely change how you go through them. So yes, the wonderful counselor can solve your problems. You've got guilt? He can handle that. He was called the friend of sinners. By his death, he came to make a way back for those far from God to get back to him. You've got regret over past mistakes? He can help you transform them. In his resurrection, he promised he could make all things new. You've got questions about eternity, about your soul? He can answer those. He told Thomas, the disciple who doubted that he was the way, the truth, and the life. You've got health problems? He can walk that road with you. The Bible says that he is a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. He came to give us hope in suffering. You've got problems in your marriage or in your family? He can help. Come to me, he told a group of weary listeners. All you are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. You've got wounds from past abuses? He can heal those. The writer of Hebrews says he can save to the uttermost those who come to him. He's the wonderful counselor. It's why he came. Why he was born in an animal shelter and grew up to have nowhere to lay his head. Why he knew rejection and loneliness and weakness. Why he healed the sick and fed the hungry and raised the dead so that you could know that he understands and can turn things around. Are you ready to experience the help of a wonderful counselor? He extends the invitation. Moving on in his chapter titled On Your Side, Greer says this, Isaiah's claim was that the baby who will be born at the first Christmas will be mighty God. Notice the first big statement he's making there, that there is a God. Out there, beyond what we can see and measure, there is not nothing. There is a God. But what kind of God? What was Isaiah thinking of when he used the word God? Well, because Isaiah was a member of the ancient nation of Israel, when he spoke of God, he had a very specific God in mind. The God who had been with Israel since the time they were just a tiny family and who had brought them to nationhood and to the land that they lived in as Isaiah passed on this message. This God had a name. God isn't a name. It's more of a category. Just about everyone in the ancient world believed in a God or gods. The question wasn't, is there a God? But rather, what kind of God are you talking about? And one of the most crucial ways of knowing God was knowing his name. God had told his name to his people hundreds of years before Isaiah's time, to another member of Israel, Moses. Moses lived at a time when the people of Israel were slaves, oppressed by Egypt. And one day, at a burning but not destroyed bush, God told Moses that he was going to rescue his people and give them freedom. Moses was not at all sure. He had made some really disastrous decisions 
and had lots of questions about where God had been while his people were in slavery, and whether God would really come through for them this time. God did not answer a single one of Moses' questions. He simply told Moses to trust him, and he told him that he had an assignment for him, a plan for his life, to bless him and to use him. And then Moses asked God a question that God did answer. What is your name? To which God responded by simply saying, I am. Exodus chapter 3, verse 14. In English, we write the word as Jehovah, or in lots of Bibles, as Lord. It is a name that God uses to describe himself some 6,519 times in the Old Testament alone. And part of what it means is that God is someone who is all that his people need, and that there is no lack in them that he cannot overcome. Moses was not convinced that he could do what God was asking. I'm not brave, he said. I'm not someone who anyone will listen to, he said. I'm not even good at public speaking, he said. God did not reply with a pep talk. He did not show Moses his hidden potential. Instead, he said, Moses, I did not choose you because you were any of those things. I am enough of both of those things for the both of us. I am, and my amness overcomes your notness. Ultimately, what matters is who God is, not who Moses is. Throughout Israel's history, God would remind them of his name, I am, Jehovah, whenever Israel was in a time of great distress or fear or need, and whatever they lacked, God would tell them that he would supply it. So for all that Israel needed, for all they lacked, for all they could never be in themselves, they had God, the great I am, the mighty God. Just imagine this for a moment, that there really is one God who made and rules everything, and that he is still all these things, a purifying, ever-present, shepherding, providing, healing, defending God. Wouldn't it be great to have him in your corner? If he really exists, of course. Which brings us to Christmas. Remember when Isaiah said, To us a child is given, mighty God. He was saying that one day the great I Am would be born as a tiny baby. The eternal, all-sufficient I Am was going to enter the world as a helpless child. That is the Bible's claim about the first Christmas. Peer over the manger and you're not looking at a poor newborn Jewish boy. You're looking at none other than I am. That's the claim. But is it true? There would be an easy way to find out. Could this person do things that an only all-powerful deity could do? Fast forward 30 years and the baby has become a man. He's out on a sea with his friends, the guys we call the disciples, and there's a terrible storm. Many of the disciples are fishermen by trade, so they know what they're doing on a boat but this storm is huge and soon they're all fighting for their lives. Meanwhile, Jesus is asleep. In all that racket, with the boat pitching and rolling, this is a wonder in itself. Eventually, though, the disciples grow so desperate that they wake him up. Teacher, don't you care that we're going to die? Jesus wakes up, looks at the storm and says, Silence, be still. The result? Mark 4, verses 38 and 39 say, The wind ceased and there was a great calm. He looks at the wind and the waves and he basically says, cut it out. He rebukes the storm. Rebuke is what you do to somebody whose authority is less than your own. You rebuke your kids. You rebuke an employee. Well, here's a guy who rebukes the weather and the weather listens to him. He just stands up and turns it off. It reminds me of standing out in a parking lot when someone's car alarm goes off. Everyone starts grumbling, whose car is that? Until someone comes out of a nearby building looking embarrassed. He mutters something like, yeah, sorry, that's mine, and presses a button. Beep, beep, alarm off. That's Jesus' approach here. He stands up and says, it's my storm. Beep, beep, storm off. And his disciples, who'd called him a teacher in the middle of the storm, now look at each other with a new kind of fear. They ask, in Mark chapter 4, verse 41, 
Who then is this? Even the wind and the sea obey him. They need to follow the evidence of what they've just seen. There's only one being who can stop a storm with a word. The mighty God, Jehovah, I am. Jesus is telling them by showing them, I am your rescue when you have no hope. In fact, that's what the name Jesus actually means. The Hebrew version of his name is Yeshua, I am your rescue. Jesus didn't just claim to be the great I am clothed in humanity. He proved that he was who he said he was. Does the great I am exist? Yes. He came and walked on this earth, and on the pages of history he calmed a storm. He walked on water. He cured blindness and deafness and paralysis. He even raised people from the dead. He did things that we cannot even imagine doing. He is what we are not, the mighty God. Oh, friend, that's so good. As we move on to the name Everlasting Father, Greer begins, Here's a word that will produce a very, very different reaction from everyone who reads this book. Father. For some of you, that word makes you smile. You have a great dad, or you are a dad to great kids or both. When it comes to your own dad, you cherish your memories of him, and you love your time with him. You'd love to spend this Christmas with him. For some of you, that word makes you smile, but it also makes you sad, because you had a great dad, but he's not around anymore. Your memories of him are beautiful, but you also carry around the memory of his funeral. You'd love to be spending this Christmas with him, but you won't. And then for some of you, that word brings up a lot of complicated and painful emotions. It makes you want to cry or to shout or to shut this book. You did not have a great relationship with your dad, and some of the greatest pain in your life comes from your relationship with him. Maybe he was never there. Maybe he abandoned you when you were very little. Maybe you never even knew him. Maybe you wish you never had known him because he always seemed too busy for you or was always disappointed in you. Maybe it was even worse than that. Maybe your father abused his position in your life to abuse you. If you're in this last category, chances are the presence or absence of your father colors your memories of Christmas's past. And so when Isaiah describes Jesus as an eternal everlasting father, that just doesn't do much for you. Greer goes on to share that a few years ago he read a very interesting book called Father Factor, How Your Father's Legacy Impacts Your Career by Stephen Poulter. Of course your father's legacy doesn't just impact your career, he says. It impacts your whole life and it influences your view of God. So I'm going to jump back in here right now, OB Tears, and tell you that if you want to read more in depth to how he describes these different types of dads and relation to God, please be sure to get this Searching for Christmas book. But in the meantime, I'm going to just briefly cover each one of them as we move on to just give us some perspective of how this everlasting father of ours in heaven is like nothing we've ever experienced this side on earth. Rather than a never satisfied dad, God is described in Zephaniah chapter 3, verse 17. The Lord will rejoice over you with gladness. He will be quiet in his love. He will delight in you with singing. Rather than a time bomb, Dad, here's what God told Moses in Exodus 34, verse 6. The Lord is a compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger and abounding in faithful love and truth. Rather than an emotionally distant dad, in Luke chapter 15, verse 20, in referring to the prodigal son, it said, while the son was still a long way off, his father saw him. And finally, in regards to the absent dad, in John chapter 14, verses 2 and 3, it says, I'm going away to prepare a place for you. If I go away and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself, so that where I am, you may be also. Jesus is the everlasting eternal father. The best earthly father is just a faint echo of the way he loves us. The most disappointing earthly father can be a reminder that there is someone who is never disappointed and never will. He offers to love you like a perfect father, 
forever. Moving on, in the discussion of the Prince of Peace, Greer says, Here's the problem many have with Jesus. He was supposed to be the Prince of Peace, but he didn't seem to deliver. When he was born, the angelic choir famously pronounced that he had brought peace on earth in Luke chapter 2, verse 14. And yet, 2,000 years later, the guns still do not fall silent, not even on Christmas Day. Relational strife and domestic violence affects more houses than most of us realize. Poverty still afflicts millions of people throughout the world. Injustice is still the daily experience of huge swathes of society. So why didn't Jesus fulfill the promise of the title that Isaiah gave him, the Prince of Peace? Was bringing peace on earth just too big a task? Actually, when we think of peace that way, we are looking at something much smaller than what Isaiah had in mind. Here's a secret I've learned in my life. I've seen it plays out hundreds of times in the church that I pastor. Horizontal dysfunction very often goes back to the vertical disconnect from God. In other words, we don't see the peace of God in our lives and in our world, the horizontal aspect of our lives, because we do not enjoy peace with God, the vertical aspect. Our greatest relational problem is our lack of relationship with God. Our greatest poverty is the spiritual poverty of not knowing God. The greatest injustice is the way that we, I and you, have treated the one who made us, who made this world, and who loves us so much that he came to live with us. Here's my question for you, Greer says. What if all the problems in your life ultimately stemmed from, or at least were exacerbated by, the reality that you are separated from God? The truth is, each of us has pursued a life of conflict with God. We don't want Him to be in charge. We don't want to need Him. We don't want Him to get to state the rules. We don't want Him to get the praise. No, we want to be in charge. We want to be independent. We want to enjoy what's right and wrong, and we want to enjoy the praise. That attitude is what the Bible calls sin. It is a universal condition of all people whether or not they consider themselves religious. If you don't believe me, try living in the way that God lays out in the Bible for 24 hours. Not just in what you do, but in what you say and think, too. I couldn't do it, and I think you'll find you cannot either. The irony is that we turn away from God to get more freedom, approval, and acceptance, but we find the opposite. Shutting God out, we feel vulnerable, exposed, ashamed, under judgment, in darkness, always seeking more and never truly finding it. Our struggle never ends, and it never will. We were made to enjoy the love and acceptance of God, to live at peace with God, but we have mistreated Him even as we live in this world. So what would it take to return to that peace? Forgiveness. And that is why Jesus came. This is what His title of Prince of Peace points us to. Into the darkness of a world in rebellion against God, God sent a child. He would live the most unusual life. He would not be born into power and privilege the way you would expect the Son of a Deity to be born. He would not rule from a throne, but would be born in poverty. He would make his life with the guilty and the oppressed, and he would eventually die, unjustly, a criminal's death, even though nobody was able to point out anything he had ever said or done wrong. It sounds like a tragic end, but it was not. It was a God-ordained end. The Old Testament is full of pictures of what God's Son would achieve, and Isaiah provides us with one of the most evocative. Isaiah 53, verse 5. He was pierced because of our rebellion, crushed because of our iniquities. Punishment for our peace was on him, and we are healed by his wounds. This is the purpose for which Jesus was born and for which he died, to take the punishment necessary to bring us peace with God. Christmas was always going to lead to Easter, so to understand the core of Christmas, you'll need to look at Easter. Christmas doesn't make sense without Easter. Jesus being the Prince of Peace doesn't make sense until we realize that the peace he came to bring us was the peace we most need, 
a solution to humanity's deepest problem, forgiveness for our sin. He came to offer the peace that meets our greatest need and that will last for eternity, peace with God. When we are at peace with God, everything changes. We know that we are accepted in the eyes of the only person whose opinion ultimately really matters. We know that whatever we pass through in this life, and however we come to death, a welcome awaits us in eternity. We know we need not fear eternal darkness anymore. We know we are a somebody because we know that Jesus loves us enough to die for us. You may have noticed this if you know someone who has started to follow Jesus. When somebody finds peace with God, they start displaying the peace of God. The vertical transforms the horizontal. They become more loving husbands. They become more content wives. They become gentler parents. They become more forgiving. That's because our souls were made for God. And as Augustine, a 4th century African bishop, put it, our hearts are restless until we find our rest in Him. One day, the peace we all yearn for will finally come. Peace on earth will come, and it will be final. The baby who grew to die on a cross also rose from a grave, and he will one day come again to this world, not in weakness as a baby, but in power as a king. On that day, this child will restore the earth to the way it was intended to be. He will right all wrongs. He will end all diseases. He will restore justice. Peace on earth will be a reality. But before he came to institute the peace of God on earth, he came to die for our sin to bring us peace with God so that we can enjoy that life with God on earth when he returns. What if all the problems in your life ultimately stem from, or were at least exacerbated by, the reality that you are separated from God? And what if the Prince of Peace died to offer you an acceptance from God and a peace with God that will change your life now and then stretch on into perfection forever? Oh my. Okay, friends, in the interest of time today, let's transition our studies a bit to now focus on the evidences of God with us, as we've already studied in our times together in Genesis and Exodus. Lifeways, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel study begins. The Garden of Eden may feel like a strange place to begin this Advent season. We want the warm fuzzies of the season, not the angst of the fall of man. Yet when we read the first chapters of Genesis, we see that God created a beautiful place for humanity to flourish. This is a love story, not just between man and woman, but between the God of the universe and His creation. As we enter this season of giving, consider God's elaborate gifts. He created the heavens and the earth and everything that would live there. He created humankind in His image. He placed Adam in a beautiful, perfect garden free of all sin and shame. He created Eve so Adam would not be alone. He created marriage, the first family. Everything He created was good and a perfect gift. James 1.17 and perhaps the most elaborate gift of all, from the dawn of humanity, God has given us His presence. He did not separate Himself from all that He made. He walked and talked with Adam on the footpath of Eden. We all know what happened next. Because of Adam and Eve's disobedience, God administered painful consequences. The first image bearers were banished from the perfect home God had created for them. I wonder if they looked around after in disbelief, shell-shocked by what happened. Their rebellion was real, so were the consequences. We still feel the impact today. Yet even in their sin, God never abandoned them, not for a second. They went on to create a family with the Lord's help, Genesis chapter 4, verse 1. God never turned His back on Adam and Eve. He never stopped loving them. The rest of the Bible reveals that God did not withdraw the gift of His presence from humankind. From the garden to the Gospels and beyond, we find God walking and talking with the children He made in His image. Yes. Intimacy with God changed when sin entered the picture, but we still serve a God who offers His presence. 
the love story continued when Christ went to the cross to pay the penalty for sin, making a way for us to come back to the perfect relationship God intended all along. Oh, friends, this reminds me of the Jesus Storybook Bible, one of my favorite children's storybook Bibles to read my kids. There's a section in there that says, Before they left the garden, God whispered a promise to Adam and Eve. It will not always be so. I will come to rescue you. And when I do, I'm going to battle against the snake. I'll get rid of the sin and the dark and the sadness you let in here. I'm coming back for you. And he would. One day, God himself would come. How amazing it truly is. God himself would come. God came down to rescue as a baby. Before that, though, if you remember in our studies in Exodus, God says he had seen and heard the Israelites' cries in their 400 years of captivity, in their slavery in Egypt. And when the time was right, he set in motion a rescue. He came down to rescue. Oh, friends, do you see how this mirrors the Christmas story? In the same way God's people were made to wait for their deliverance from Egypt, God didn't send Jesus to save his people right away. In fact, he waited thousands of years to send the promised rescuer, sometimes leaving them wondering if he had forgotten them altogether. But God continued to whisper it over and over again as his children waited, knowing that one day, when no one was expecting it, Jesus, their rescuer and ours, would come. The 400 years of silence between the Old and the New Testaments, and then, as is said in Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 and 5, But when the right time came, God sent His Son, born of a woman, subject to the law. God sent Him to buy freedom for us who were slaves to the law, so that He could adopt us as His very own children. So beautiful. At the right time. In God's time. Now in turning back to look at God's rescue of the Israelites, though, in our previous studies here on OBT, we saw for many generations God's people suffered hardship under the rule of Pharaoh. And apart from what God does for them, they were helpless to save themselves. God did it all and made his presence known in a tangible way throughout. We don't see the Israelites doing anything in the plagues or the parting of the Red Sea to save themselves. Their rescuer had come. In Lifeways O Come, O Come, Emmanuel's study, in a section titled, God With Us in the Cloud, it reads, Life will always throw us curveballs. When I find myself in circumstances I don't know how to navigate, I'm incredibly grateful for the story of the Israelites that we get to examine together today. Their story reminds us that in times of uncertainty, difficulty, and pain, we can find hope by fixing our eyes on the God who chooses to be present with us. When we examine scripture and see examples of God showing up over and over again for his people, we're reminded he will do the same for us. Let's consider the context of Exodus chapter 13, verses 21 and 22. The Israelites had just watched God unleash the plagues in Egypt, and Pharaoh had finally agreed to let them go, ending a 400-year period of slavery for God's people. In Exodus chapter 13, verse 21, we learn one of the purposes of God's presence in the cloud was to guide the people. The pillar of cloud became a pillar of fire at night so they could travel day or night. In verse 22, we learn the pillar didn't leave its place in front of the people. In other words, the presence of God was with his children every step of the way. Just a few verses later, though, we read that Pharaoh and his army decided to pursue the Israelites. The Israelites reacted when they saw the Egyptians approaching with panic, whining, despair, distress, and complaining. For those of us who know how this story ends, it's easy to be dismissive of the Israelites' fear. We may read this account with a strong desire to remind the Israelites that they were being led by the God who had just brought the plagues on Egypt and delivered them from hundreds of years of slavery. 
But how many times have our circumstances felt so overwhelming that fear overtakes our trust in the God who faithfully leads us? As the story unfolds, the Lord commanded Moses to part the Red Sea so the Israelites could walk through on dry ground, escaping Pharaoh's army. Before they took even a single step on the sandy floor, the pillar of cloud moved behind the Israelites, creating an impenetrable barrier between them and the Egyptians. Exodus 14.20 reads, It came between the Egyptian and Israelite forces. There was cloud and darkness. It lit up the night, and neither group came near the other all night long. What an amazing display of God's power. While the Israelites probably would have preferred he not even allow the Egyptians to come after them, God was able to demonstrate his power to the Egyptians and the Israelites by parting the Red Sea and rescuing his people. Once the Israelites arrived safely on the other side, the Lord closed the sea over the Egyptians, destroying them. The Israelites' response revealed that their gaze had shifted away from their circumstances and toward the Lord. Exodus chapter 14 verse 31 reads, When Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians, the people feared the Lord and believed in him and his servant Moses. I am thankful to serve a God who constantly reminds me that he is greater than what I fear. It's an everyday battle for me to fix my eyes on the Lord rather than the difficulties around me. But when I read the story of the Israelites, I clearly see the Lord's faithful presence and am encouraged. As an observer looking in from the outside, it's so clear to me just how essential the Lord's presence was to their journey. He came near to them in the cloud, and He is near to us today. Moving on, we're going to take a look at God with us in the tabernacle and the temple, as found in chapters of the book of Exodus that we have not yet studied. I guess consider this a teaser of what is to come when we resume our studies in the book of Exodus in early 2024. After he had delivered the people of Israel from Egypt, God established a covenant with them through which they were uniquely chosen by him to live for his purposes and his glory. He gave them a distinct set of laws so other nations would see that they were people who lived differently from everyone around them. He also prescribed how and where they would worship, giving meticulous instructions for the construction of a house of worship, a tabernacle, also called the Tent of Meeting. Exodus chapter 35 records some of the instructions for building the tabernacle and the specific items that would be housed within it. Moses told the people that those whose heart is willing should provide the offerings for the work, and those who are skilled artisans or skilled craftsmen should make the items for the tabernacle. In other words, although they were all a part of God's chosen people, not just any Israelite could step up to do the work, only the men and women with the right gifts and the right attitude, because this wasn't just any other tent or building. The tabernacle will be the place of the physical location of God's presence with His people. It is here that God would dwell among humankind and make Himself known. Their rescuer and redeemer, the God who performed signs and wonders in delivering them from the oppression of the Egyptians, was setting apart a distinct place so that He could dwell among them. God clearly wanted to be with His people, and He was making a way. Once construction of the tabernacle was complete, the people witnessed a cloud descending on it, and the glory of the Lord filled it. When the people of God saw the cloud cover the tabernacle and temple, they knew God was with them. As they continued their journey toward the promised land, they had His presence to lead the way. Whenever they didn't see the cloud covering the tabernacle, they packed up their things and continued toward their new home. If the cloud remained over the tabernacle, they waited on the Lord to reveal the next steps. Exodus chapter 40 verses 36 and 37. The tabernacle was their compass, and the cloud of God's presence was their guide. Yet even though God dwelt with His people, they could not approach Him freely. Here is one of the beautiful paradoxes of Scripture. While the cloud communicated God's presence, it also represented God's holiness. It is a protective barrier between a holy God and sinful man. 
The glory of God is so pure that humanity cannot even look at Him directly. In spite of this, God made a way for His people to experience His presence through the various chambers of the tabernacle and temple. Within the Most Holy Place, the Ark of the Covenant, which stored the stone tablets, the physical elements of God's covenant with His people, was contained behind a veil. God desires to dwell with His people, and the tabernacle was a part of His plan for being present with them. Nevertheless, His holiness prevented His people from being able to approach Him freely and whenever they chose. His holiness remains unchanged today. Our sin still separates us from a holy God. However, just like in the tabernacle and the temple, God made a way for us to enter His presence. Emmanuel, God with us. His name is Jesus. Continuing on in LifeWay's O Come, O Come, Emmanuel study, in day four, which reads God with us, it talks about Mary and Joseph and all of those visits and things that, that we know from the Christmas story. But as we move further along in this study day, we read John chapter 1, verses 1 and 14. And it says, Next, Young's literal translation puts John 1, 14 this way, And the Word became flesh and did tabernacle among us, and we beheld His glory, glory as of only begotten of a Father, full of grace and truth. The author of that day's study said, I find it interesting that some of the most literal translations include the word tabernacle. The original Greek word specifically means to reside, as God did in the tabernacle of old, a symbol of protection and communion, or the word dwell. For the original readers already familiar with the Old Testament, the use of this word would remind them of how God came and dwelt with the Israelites in the tabernacle. The word choice is special because it symbolizes Jesus' holy dwelling with us. Just like the tabernacle occupied the center of the community in the Old Testament, Jesus, God with us, Emmanuel, came to dwell with us on earth, right in the center of everything. Christ tabernacling among us is a beautiful picture of God's closeness when the Word became flesh. Because of this closeness, Jesus shares in our weaknesses. He sympathizes in our struggles. He rejoices with us. He understands from living with us that our fleshly dwelling on earth is not always easy, but with faith for the joy ahead, we can endure and lift up our praise to the Father. When we feel troubled and fearful like Mary initially was, or disappointed and disheartened like Joseph may have been, remember, God is with us. We don't have to be afraid. We can seek to live a Christian life similar to that of a child who can't help but reflexively sing or leap for the joy in his heart. We can shout for joy and gladness because Jesus came to dwell among us. Okay, friends. I came across this perspective from Max Lucado as found in his In the Manger book that I just had to share here. In a chapter called God Came Near, it reads, It all happened in a moment, a most remarkable moment. As moments go, that one appeared no different than any other. It came and it went. It was one of the countless moments that have marked time since eternity became measurable. But in reality, that particular moment was like none other. For through that segment of time, a spectacular thing occurred. God became a man. While the creatures of earth walked unaware, divinity arrived. Heaven opened herself and placed her most precious one in a human womb. The omnipotent, in one instant, made himself breakable. He who had been spirit became pierceable. He who was larger than the universe became an embryo. And he who sustains the world with the word chose to be dependent upon the nourishment of a young girl. God is a fetus, holiness sleeping in a womb, the creator of life being created. God was given eyebrows, elbows, two kidneys, and a spleen. He stretched against the walls and floated in the amniotic fluid of his mother. God came near. He came not as a flash of light or as an unapproachable conqueror, but as one whose first cries were heard by a peasant girl and a sleepy carpenter. The hands that first held him were unmanicured, calloused, and dirty. 
no silk, no ivory, no hype, no party, no hoopla. Were it not for the shepherds, there would have been no reception. And were it not for a group of stargazers, there would have been no gifts. Angels watched as Mary changed God's diaper. Children played in the street with him. He may have had pimples and been tone deaf. Perhaps a girl down the street had a crush on him, or vice versa. One thing's for sure, he was, while completely divine, completely human. For 33 years, he felt everything you and I have ever felt. He felt weak. He grew weary. He was afraid of failure. He got colds, burped, and had body odor. His feelings got hurt, and his head ached. To think of Jesus in such a light almost seems irreverent, doesn't it? It's uncomfortable. It is much easier to keep the humanity out of the Incarnation. There is something about keeping him divine that keeps him distant, packaged, predictable. But don't do it. For heaven's sake, don't. Let him be as human as he intended to be. Let him into the mire and muck of our world. For only if we let him in can he pull us out. It all happened in one moment, a most remarkable moment. The word became flesh. There will be another. The world will see another instantaneous transformation. You see, in becoming man, God made it possible for man to see God. When Jesus went home, he left the back door open. As a result, as it says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 51 and 52, we will all be changed, in a flash, in the twinkling of an eye. The first moment of transformation went unnoticed by the world, but you can bet your sweet September that a second won't. The next time you use the fray just a moment, remember that's all it will take to change this world. In the interest of time, I'm going to keep moving along by reading from Lifeway's O Come, O Come, Emmanuel study in a day called God With Us in the Indwelling of the Holy Spirit. John chapter 14 verses 12 through 17 is part of Jesus' farewell discourse. We learn from Matthew chapter 1 verse 23 that Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us. John chapter 1 verse 14 tells us that Jesus is the Word made flesh who dwelt among us. But in John chapter 14, Jesus knew he would soon be returning to the Father. The cross was near, and he would soon do the work of salvation God had sent him to earth to accomplish. But before he left, Jesus had some important things he wanted to say to his followers. He told them that he would ask his Father to give us the Holy Spirit, the Counselor, the Helper, the Advocate. Different versions translate this word in verse 16 differently, but almost all of them use the Spirit of Truth in verse 17. Jesus was promising the Holy Spirit. Our works will be greater than those of Jesus because of the Holy Spirit in us. Isn't that amazing to think about? John uses the Greek word meno in both verses 16 and verse 17. The CSB translates it be with in verse 16 and remains in verse 17. Meno means abide, not to depart, not to leave, to continue to be present. The Holy Spirit abides in us. He is staying with us. He is in us. He isn't going anywhere. Look again at verse 16, which says, We can expect the Holy Spirit to never leave us. Jesus went back to the Father, but he didn't leave his followers alone. Jesus asked the Father, and the Father sent the Holy Spirit in the name of the Son. All three persons of the Trinity work together to ensure we are never alone and without God. My friends, we live in the already, not yet. Jesus has done the work of redemption. We have been sealed with the Holy Spirit, the guarantee of our redemption. But we are awaiting the final redemption when Jesus will return and right every wrong and make everything that was broken new again. Then we will be united with Him forever. Revelation chapter 21 verse 3 reads, God's home is now among His people. He will live with them and they will be His people. God Himself will be with them. God will tabernacle among us. He will dwell with us forever. This is what we are longing for, what the Holy Spirit guarantees, when our adoption will be finalized, when we receive our long-awaited inheritance, when we are glorified, 
when we are finally with God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit forever. God was with his people in the garden. God was with his people in the cloud. God was with his people in the tabernacle and temple. God is with his people in the Son through the Holy Spirit. And while we walk by the Spirit, we await the coming day when we will be with God in our heavenly home for all eternity. So beautiful. The second advent is coming, my OOB tears. Okay, now going back to Max Lucado's In the Manger book one more time in today's episode, in a section titled Christ in You, let's listen to more perspective about the Holy Spirit living in us. What must it been like for Mary to carry God in her womb? The virgin birth is much more than a Christmas story. It is a picture of how close Christ will come to you. The first stop on his itinerary was a womb. Where will God go to touch the world? Look deep within Mary for an answer. Better still, look deep within yourself. What he did with Mary he offers to us. He issues a Mary-level invitation to all his children. If you let me, I'll move in. All throughout scripture is a preposition that leaves no doubt. The preposition in. Jesus lives in his children. To his apostles, Christ declared, I am in you, John 14, 20. Paul's prayer for the Ephesians was that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, Ephesians 3, 17. Christ in you, the hope of glory, Colossians 1, 27. And the sweetest invitation from Christ? Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and he with me, Revelation 3, 20. Christ grew in Mary until he had to come out. Christ will grow in you until the same occurs. He will come out in your speech, in your actions, in your decisions. Every place you live will be Bethlehem, and every day you live will be a Christmas. You, like Mary, will deliver Christ into the world. God in us. Have we sounded the depth of this promise? You are a modern-day Mary. Even more so, he was a fetus in her, but he has a force in you. He will do what you cannot do. Imagine a million dollars being deposited into your checking account. To any observer, you look the same, except for the goofy smile. But are you? Not at all. With God in you, you have a million resources that you did not have before. Can't stop drinking or worrying? Christ can, and he lives within you. Can't forgive the jerk, forget the past, or forsake your bad habits? Christ can, and he lives in you. Paul knew this. In Colossians 1.29, he says, To this end I also labor, striving according to his working which works in me mightily. Like Mary, you and I are indwelt by Christ. Find that hard to believe? How much more did Mary? The line beneath her picture in the high school annual did not read, aspires to be the mother of God. No, no one was more surprised by this miracle than she was. And no one was more passive than she was. God did everything. Mary didn't volunteer to help. What did she have to offer? Advice? From my perspective, a heavenly choir would add a nice touch. Yeah, right. She offered no assistance, and she offered no resistance. She could have said, Who am I to have God in my womb? I'm not enough. Or, I've got other plans. I don't have time for God in my life. Instead, Mary said, in Luke chapter 1, verse 38, Behold the maidservant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. If she is our measure, God seems less interested in talent and more interested in trust. Unlike her, we tend to assist God, assuming our part is as important as His, or we resist, thinking we are too bad or too busy. Yet when we assist or resist, we miss God's great grace. We miss out on the reason that we were placed on earth, to be so pregnant with heaven's child that He lives through us, to be so full of Him that we would say with Paul in Galatians 2.20, 
It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. Goodness, that's a lot to take in, but all oh so important for us to recognize the reality of God with us throughout Scripture and in our own lives even. Oh my oh, be tears. This season unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given. Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us. God come down to us. God come down to you. God with you. Amazing, just amazing to take in, am I right? As a way of pulling together our studies of God with us as found in what we have already been studying on the pages of God's Word the last couple of years, plus our deep dive into some verses from Isaiah 7 and 9, consider this with me. In a moment, I'm going to read the lyrics of O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. But before I do, though, have you actually stopped and taken the time to really listen to the words of the songs we sing during the Christmas season? Especially in light of all we have now studied together, in Genesis, Exodus, and previous Advents even. Have you recognized the gospel story found in the lyrics of the carols we sing at Christmas time? In all honesty, I really hadn't myself even until working through a few different Advent Bible studies over the last few years, from Lifeway and She Reads Truth, that made this idea come alive for me. With all that in mind, how about we start to unpack the gospel truth found in O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, which begins, O come, O come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel that mourns in lonely exile here until the Son of God appear. Rejoice, rejoice, Emmanuel, shall come to thee, O Israel. O come, thou dayspring, come and cheer, our spirits bind thine advent here. Disperse the gloomy clouds of night and death's dark shadows put to flight. Rejoice, rejoice, Emmanuel, shall come to thee, O Israel. O come, thou key of David, come, and open wide our heavenly home. Make safe the way that leads on high, and close the path to misery. Rejoice, rejoice, Emmanuel, shall come to thee, O Israel. Okay, please note that I will link to one of my most favorite live performances of this song by King and Country in the show notes. I love their version so much. Also, as you can probably imagine, Lifeway's O Come, O Come, Emmanuel study has quite a bit to say about what we see happening in the lyrics of this beloved Christmas carol. It begins, Every year, no matter the scale, we all experience sorrow, individually and communally. Every year holds its share of loneliness, hurt, and tragedy of brokenness. This year and every year, as the days on our calendar dwindle, our hearts cry out with the same last words in the Bible, as found in Revelation 22.20, Come, Lord Jesus. Advent is a season set aside to celebrate that Christ came to us as a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and to look forward with anticipation to the moment when He will return as our triumphant King. It's a season to rejoice. We've chosen O Come, O Come, Emmanuel as a theme for this Bible study. It's a song that has been sung by Christ followers for more than 150 years. I love the verbs found in the chorus. The call to rejoice is present tense. Rejoice, rejoice. This is a call to action. Rejoice now, O Israel. Sing praise. Be full of joy. Celebrate. The second sentence of the chorus is future tense. Emmanuel shall come to thee, O Israel. These familiar lyrics emphasize the past, the time before Christ's coming. They help us remember that Israel, God's chosen people, once longed for Him to come and rescue them. God's children had been united by the same heart cry throughout the years. Come, Lord Jesus. Come be with us. While they lived in loneliness, in sorrow, in hurt, in tragedy, in the sheer brokenness of our world, Israel begged God to send a Savior. But even as they pleaded for rescue, they rejoiced. 
Though it's a precious piece of church history, this song isn't scripture. Though it wasn't God-breathed, it accurately reflects the stories of God's people recorded in the Old Testament, as well as the longings of our hearts today. Israel could rejoice as they cried out for a Savior because they believed in the promises of God. Our God is faithful, and we know He will fulfill every word He has spoken. Jesus Christ fulfilled all the promises of God, as it references in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20. So His people can rejoice in what's to come. In the same way, even in seasons of uncertainty when the brokenness of our world weighs heavily on us, we can rejoice too. We can be a people full of joy even now. Emmanuel will come to us again. We can trust it because He said it. He promised, Yes, I am coming soon. Revelation 22.20 As we look back at the stable where Jesus arrived that first Christmas, we can rejoice, celebrating another promise kept. As we look forward, longing for the day of Christ's second coming, we can celebrate with singing. Though we mourn in lonely exile here, we celebrate with great hope that the Son of God will soon appear. Because He lives within us, we never have to know life without God's presence. Even so, our hearts long for Emmanuel. We look forward with great anticipation to the day when we will once again experience His physical presence, God with us, forever. Now and always, rejoice, rejoice. Emmanuel shall come to thee, O Israel. Okay, my OOB tears, please remember that this show is scheduled to release every other Wednesday wherever you like to listen to your podcasts. Up next will be some more talk about all things Advent as we take a deeper dive into the Christmas story itself. More specifically, we are going to lean into Jesus' first visit to the temple, Simeon and Anna, the visit of the wise men, King Herod, and even God sending his son along with Mary and Joseph to Egypt for a while for safety. I can't wait. Before we go, though, please join me as we end our time together today with this beautiful Christmas prayer I came across from Henry Nouwen. Lord Jesus, Master of both the light and the darkness, send your Holy Spirit upon our preparations for Christmas. We who have so much to do seek quiet spaces to hear your voice each day. We who are anxious over many things look forward to your coming among us. We who are blessed in so many ways long for the complete joy of your kingdom. We whose hearts are heavy seek the joy of your presence. We are your people, walking in darkness, yet seeking the light. To you we say, come Lord Jesus. Amen and amen. Oh my, come Lord Jesus. Yes and amen, right, my O.O.B. tears? This is M. Faring. And I can't wait until we open our Bibles together next time, my friends.